In this podcast, Pamela Barty, a Forbes 30 under 30 entrepreneur and developer of a $100 million real estate empire, will share her inspiring underdog comeback story. And along with those of her guests, she'll share how you too, as an underdog, can rise up and succeed against all odds. Here's your host, Pamela Barty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Underdog. Today, I have my awesome friend here with me, Akshob. Akshob, how are you, my friend? I'm good, Pamela, bracing the cold. I hope you're doing well. Absolutely. And geopolitical, you mentioned that's like your special ninja weapon there. (laughs) So I'm sure we'll get into that for sure. But, you know, what inspired your journey to to sort of where you are today? And you can take it, you know, wherever, wherever you like. So I grew up in Bombay, India, and uh, it was really funny because the notion when you grow up in India first for a lot of people was, you know, it was sort of intellectual arranged marriage in the sense that you're only supposed to love, you can love the humanities, but you're supposed to get married to the sciences. You know, mm-hmm. I always joke that I'm going to be going to Indian purgatory for not being a doctor, scientist, engineer. But I came from a family that the Indian dream was the American dream, where they kind of did the hard engineering and then my dad's brothers all moved to the United States. But my dad himself being an engineer and being an IIT, and you would think that that would be the norm imposed on most families and on me, but my parents were very supportive of me undertaking whatever I wanted. And by the ages of 11 and 12, my dad always says that he kind of knew that I was more, you know, didn't have to do the sciences and the hard STEM degrees. And, you know, so I was sort of at a crossroads after I finished my undergrad, you know, like after I finished my high school, I was debating law school. And my dad stopped me in my tracks and he says, hey, you know, Ali McBeal, Boston Legal and all these legal dramas. I'm like, yeah, yeah. He's like, yeah, law school is not like that, right? Corporate law can be boring and you don't like boring. So you want to think twice about it. And that was a saving grace for me. And I did a generic three-year commerce degree. And while I was considering if I want to do law school again, I was very active in the quiz circuits uh, and the debating team circuits in college. And my good friend of mine, my partner in my quiz and debating team, like we were on debate team, the regular friend of mine, he told me that, uh, listen, you should come and try out for ESPN APAC. I was having this series called Dream Job. It was sort of the search for the next Anderson Cooper of sports. There was a leading figure in uh, broadcast journalism, and he had made his career uh, without being a sports star. You know, it's, it's very hard to do that at that time. And it was called the search for the next this person. And I, you know, I, I was like just 20 then. And I joked that these are a bunch of people who think they're going to become the next this person by virtue of just walking in. And he said, look, you're not doing anything important in college today. Why don't you just come down for this? So I was on my way to college and I dressed like a college kid in, you know, branded t-shirt with some worn torn jeans and flip-flops. And I stumbled into the auditions, which is like sort of American Idol-ish because people are there, I've traveled from out of town. People are there from morning. People are really hoping on this or the hope on a prayer. And, you know, like they want this, the make it to break it kind of moment. And I just walked into the lark. You were auditioning to be a sports anchor. And one thing led to another and I got selected. I feel bad for my friend. He didn't get selected though. And they picked 70 people all India and I was from my city picked. And then they went down to the final 18. And the final 18 people were on this television show called Dream Job. And I tell people, don't think of it as a reality show. Think of it as an apprentice without a Donald Trump. You know, we were competing for <laughs> a job interview. 
And we went through several rounds and I was 20, but I looked 14. So there was no way I was going to get the top sports anchor job. I wasn't even out of college. My voice had barely cracked. And, but it was amazing because it was the first time where, you know, you look at these sports anchors and there's no career path to get there. Like, unlike law school, you know, you have to lawyer, you know, to go to the law school, clear the bar. Yeah. But I'm like, how do you become that? Like, there's no way to become these things. And I was on the show and I got knocked out in the final eight and the final four were going to Australia for this big tournament or this cricket match and so all, all of a sudden I felt like Netflix season three canceled you know like I felt like I was in a height of something and then all of a sudden there's no more and I was like okay I, I'm 20 I don't know what to do now and you know how do you go from lights camera action on you to back to school and I was like uh, so I abandoned plans for law school I said I'm going to go to journalism school learn the tricks of the trade and come back to this and in between my undergrad and my first master's, cricket in India became a little uh, NFL franchisee based. A lot of money came in and it was called the Indian Premier League. So I, as a rookie reporter, I got my first chance to cover those tournaments. And so as a kid who grew up watching these guys, you, you're interviewing the equivalent of Tom Brady players, uh, you know, for people who may not know cricketers. And since then, I realized this is what I want to do. And I went for my master's in journalism and uh, ESPN, which had seen me on the show, had kept in touch with me and they said, what are you up to now? And I said, well, I'm doing this grad school. And they said, why do you want to, do you want to do an internship with us? I said, sure. And they said, why don't you come down to Singapore? And uh, that's when I had my first internship. And um, after that, they offered me a first time job. So that's why I started working at ESPN in Singapore. So that's how the journey, the long journey started. And I think the, the, the note I tell people here is a little bit of serendipity. We all need a little bit of luck going our way in life. And you know, we heard about right place and right time. And I still tell this friend of mine today that had you not called me, I could have just been in law school or my career may not have happened or I may not have moved to Singapore. So it's a, it's a tiny little moments that, you know, that make big things, a little bit of butterfly effect. Right. I mean, it transformed your whole trajectory in a way. Right. And, and I'm surprised that your dad said uh, law school is not for you. I think he probably just caveated that more yeah. than not law school, not for me. I think he kind of said that you don't like mundane monotony, which is true. My dad jokes that I have a very good memory, which is how I go through school. Because uh, I remember things from kindergarten or when I was five or just these random things. And that's why I was good at knowing sports stats because I just saw things once and I would mostly remember it. Very arcane, random things. Uh, it annoys my sister and my mom at times. Like, why do I know these random things? But it's not a computer that I can organize well. But he just kind of said that I don't like mundane monotony and I would get bored with it. Mm-hmm. And, and the good thing about what he said was that in his time, it was, and back then, it was, education was the only upward social mobility, right? So it was yeah. engineering, medicine, or your goner. And he told me that he picked engineering because he couldn't stand the sight of blood. So, you know, and so he said that you have more career options today. So don't have to do what's in thrust. And it's very anomaly because there's a great movie in India called Three Idiots, which is one of the protagonists has a father who just constantly tells him that if you don't become an engineer, you're a dead loss. Yeah, the reverse, like my dad was begging me not to do it because, you know, he says, even if you do it, I could make you do it, but you will despise me for it and you'll hate it. So I was very fortunate in that sense. I had a very uh, understanding set of parents in that regard. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. So your biggest influence, you would have to say, was your father growing up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that would be uh, very accurate. I think my dad, the funny thing is, even though he's an, I, like, he's an engineer from the lead institute of India, like it's like the MIT in India. But mm-hmm. he would also be the reason I know Shakespeare or inculcated a love of sport and not just sport as in scream from the stands and, you know, but knowing sport literature, reading sport literature, like understand the poetry and prose behind it or 
my Sinatra movies or James Bond movies and the PG Woodhouse uh, fandom that he shares. So I would say that would, and I think that's a generational gap, right? The diversity of choices that the eclectic interest, we may have more at our means today in terms of ability to consume, but his generation, even though he's an engineer, but he's not just an engineer. He was, I mean, even though he's an engineering by graduation, but he could regale you with, you know, a Sinatra anecdote or, you know, Simon Garfunkel songs or uh, something in geopolitics. So I think he was very, or, or even talking about Wimbledon in the seventies. So he was very diverse in his eclectic interest and knowledge. That's fantastic. Wow. And so you went from ESPN and Singapore. And now how did you pivot into the geopolitical space? Because that's like a super niche type of, and it, they seem like polar opposite worlds almost. You know, this is something that the world was a very tough moment in some ways. So I was 23 and I started in ESPN Singapore where I left off last with you on the previous question. Um, Ironically, I tell people I came through a show called Dream Job, but my job was anything but a dream job. It was a nightmare job. And let's start with the sausage theory. You like something, don't see how it's made. Uh, never meet your heroes kind of thing. But I was in the newsroom and it was a different time. It was ESPN was unlike traditional news. It was a production programming channel. I was in Singapore, which and trying to do sport in Singapore is trying to cover Congressional Hill politics in Montana. You know, you just, you're not, you're, you're not in the right place for it. And over a period of time, I realized that I was not getting the, I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to go out there meet people, speak to people like yourselves and, and try and write more. But it was a lot of monkey see, monkey do in the television world. And, and it would really upset me is as an esoteric sports fan who knew the game, who knew various sports, who wanted to add you know, an intellectual quotient to what people are seeing, I didn't need to know sports. Like if you change ESPN to MTV back then, it wouldn't matter because, you know, the editor would still cut clips, the ad salesperson would still sell sales. 90% of people's job wouldn't change. And, and all of a sudden I had this sort of crisis of confidence at 22, 23, you're like, okay, you know, I came, I've got my job in Singapore, which is a big deal, uh, you know, without studying there, but there's a big brand. And it was like the base pyramid but all of a sudden, you know, you've come to the land of milk and honey and find that there's no nectar. What happened then after a period of time, I, I realized that I was already in a bubble in Singapore, right? And ESPN's an even bigger bubble in a bubble, right? Like you don't, you know, and I realized I wasn't going out and meeting people. And gradually I started meeting friends and friends of mine who were in universities and they were, um, you know, involved with TEDx's. And, and I realized that, look, Singapore is just Asian bubbling economy. It's just got a lot of things going on. If you are going to stick and do, when we talk about sports, you're going to do a few things. You're going to isolate dynamic people outside the realm of sport. And two is you're a commentator at heart. Like you like consuming knowledge. You like writing about things. You don't have to just do that about sport. And another thing I realized was I was, what makes Singapore's economy thrive? It wasn't sport. And I realized that I was further away from the, the nucleus, right? And I was at the Pluto of the solar system where I needed to be more near earth, near the sun, where things were. So I gradually decided after ESPN, after a year or two there, I moved into Channel News Asia, uh, which is Singapore's version of the Singapore broadcaster. I, I joke it's CNN of the region, but it's sometimes our news coverage is a little more Fox News like. We kind of tell you what is mandated. Channel News Asia is more like, you know, CNN of the region, good coverage, but our Singapore coverage is a little more restrictive. It opened up doors. Like I could understand. I was speaking to technology companies, I was speaking to policymakers, I was speaking to visiting dignitaries. I was, I got a front row seat to understanding Singapore's political and economics landscape that I would not understand otherwise. And I think that was very important for me to understand. And I think in that really, like it was the opportunity scale, right? Doing sports in a place like Singapore and ESPN as compared to doing business 
in national news in an Asian tiger economy in the biggest news network. So all of a sudden my opportunity scale went from year to year, right? And then I realized that after a while, I wanted to take my skills of media and you know geopolitics and economic news and pivot to something which is very DC, New York based. So that's sort of what happened really. Interesting. Well, I just think, I think it's fascinating when you said that you pivoted and that ESPN, you know, which is sports, you would never think that it'd give you perspective the way it did for you to basically lay it all out there for you. You know, the geopolitical landscape, like all these different things. Cause I would never think that you'd get that from sports. I mean, so I think that that's so cool that you had that because you mean, a lot of times in life, right? Like you said, it's serendipity. These little moments that can change your tra- trajectory. Because I tell people all the time, I'm like opportunity surrounds you everywhere. Just right. take one step. Like if you had you not done that internship, maybe you wouldn't have been exposed to all that. But who would have ever thought, right, that you would get such a macro perspective by interning for ESPN? Which you know, you would think you think an intern at ESPN. I'm just like, wow, you're studying plays. You're doing, you know, maybe you might learn some editing and video skills and stuff like that. But I just find it fascinating that that's the perspective that you were able to take out of that. I think it's a sense of both, right? It's the sense of trying to understand what makes the business survive. And when I realized that the business was just surviving on acquiring sports rights and reselling those sports rights, and the, the space for someone like me was more of a sports connoisseur who wants to rhapsodize about it. I realized that, okay, I can't monetize this necessarily here. It's very hard to monetize it. And what I really, what really satiates me is consuming knowledge about things and trying to understand it and parlay that into writings or, you know, and trying to do something about that. And I realized that in a production programming channel, the space to do that was just limited or almost non-existent. So, and, and I think today moving into the geopolitical realm, what's really helped is, even though I don't write on sports as much anymore, but I occasionally write, this month I wrote one or two, but it's allowed me to add context. You know, like when I went to Australia in 2015 for the Cricket World Cup, it made me understand Australia more, you know, like from the geopolitical context to the sport, you know, the, the whole culture and why Australians are good at sport and how their sense of it can, uh, geographic isolation from the rest of the world and the outdoorsy lifestyle. Both. When you look at something from outside in, it kind of gives you more perspective than just inside inside, you know, and you know, even I was telling some of my cricket journalist friends is when they're talking about the sport, I'm like, let me tell you something about cricket, right? You may think it's growing, but if US and China's geopolitical entities are not involved, it's not growing, right? The two biggest economies, if they're not involved in something, it's not growing. And this is maybe a very simple aphorism, but it allows you to understand things more. And I think right now in the COVID era, what it's shown you is the fact that sports has been totally isolated, partly because it's, I mean, obviously the crowds can't be there and everything is shut down. But a lot of my sports journalist friends almost had very little to do. They were writing, regurgitating old things and finding other things to do. But it also shows you how much further you are from the nucleus of the economy. And the more you're closer to Pluto of the sol- economic solar system, it gets colder. So you got to kind of get closer. And, and I think and this doesn't mean that you got to quit whatever you're doing and everyone rush to Wall Street to be a banker. I mean, that's not the case anymore. But you have to understand various things in play, right? And I realized that there's no such thing. Sports analysts are not going to be paid the way financial analysts are paid because there are economic repercussions with certain sectors. Sport has money coming in from outside in, in terms of commercial rights and revenues and all. And, and of course, sports stars make a lot of money. That's, there's no doubt about it. But I meant to say that I, as a non-sports star, was, you know, as, as a journalist, could. I mean, there's no, I'm not saying you can't do that. But I realized that if I did not make a conscious choice at 23, 24 to get out, 
you'd be typecasted as one. I'd be typecasted as a TV person. I'd be typecasted as a sports person. And it was almost very hard explaining to my next job, how does ESPN tie in with that? You know, and it's always hard doing that because it's very easy for people to box you. Right. Absolutely. Oh, man. So, so tell me a little bit more about the pivot into the geopolitical space because it all makes sense now that you're explaining it. Now, I'm sure you got some sort of opportunity or something awesome because then you shifted into speaking and doing all sorts of awesome things. So, yeah, I, you know, I think when I moved into doing business reporting and the good thing about business and reporting is economics and geopolitics are very connected, right? I mean, the whole concept of politics and business is no longer two different Venn diagrams. They're sort of the there's big overlap as well. And and you've seen it more in the U.S. right now. I mean, the outgoing president right now was known for his time in the private sector, right? And other things to veer away from politics a little bit. But there's a whole nexus that's there between politics and business. It's no longer private sector, public sector, and there's no overlap. But when I was covering a lot of business journalism, I was also very interested in international relations. I mean, even when I was into sports as a kid growing up in India, I was also very obsessed with India-Pakistan politics. And when geopolitics between two countries don't work, it affects sports, right? When you would always realize when tension between India and Pakistan got high, cricket tournaments got pulled off, they weren't playing each other, they weren't touring each other's countries. The trick, it's sport doesn't have a trickle-down effect in other things. I mean, in some cases it does. Honduras, El Salvador literally have gone to war over a football soccer game. But uh, uh, it's a good fun for trivia pub fact if you ever want to know that. But more often than not, it's geopolitics. And you've seen that where the United States didn't go for the Moscow Olympics and the Russian USSR didn't come for the Olympics in LA when the height of the Cold War, right? So the geopolitical element trickles onto sports. So geopolitics is always there. But when I was covering business journalism, there was a lot of understanding. You know, there was a lot of understanding between countries and trade deals, investing in anything, and the trickle down effect. And there was this amazing sense of symbiotic relationship. And it really just allowed me to broaden my view. I mean, I had done sport all of a sudden, and somebody was covering central banks, and I didn't know what. Fed quantitative easing was. And I, you know, and all of a sudden I was like, how did I come from there to here? And my yeah. friend who went to journalism school with me were like, this doesn't make sense. You were the sports guy. You, you were going to be the sports guy. How, how are you doing this? And, and I think one of them said something to someone else that made sense to me is that something would have happened so much in Akshob that he would have not wanted to do it, right? Like, you know, you, you have that cathartic moment or there's this one epiphanic moment that changes you. And I think you know, in some ways, I always, you know, describe my early sports journalism analogy to a couple of cricketers who started playing at 17, 18 and had all this limelight and then fizzled away. I mean, I got a lot of the chances in sport at 17, 18, you know, before I looked old enough to shave or drive or anything. And then at 20 to 23, I was like, I'd take a call if I stayed in. It would, in some ways, it would like a sports star. 23, 24, you have to decide if you can make this professional or you got to get out. And, you know, at 20 to 23, when I realized that I could still push it and try other places, but I realized that I was no longer the same person. I I think my worldview broadened. And I think when your worldview broadens, and just not being disparaging to anyone who's still in it, I still think some of my best writers, I admire great sports writers, but I also wouldn't see that where my economic opportunities would be limited. And I didn't want to be behind the eight ball all the time. Not saying that have it go mine because I'm sort of searching for that, but if you're always going to be behind the eight ball, then you always have to play catch up. It's always on the treadmill. And I decided to kind of get out of that. And and being in the geopolitical economic space, you know, case in point, you're meeting people like yourself doing interesting opportunities. And, you know, I'm also a people's person. So understanding your immigrant stories and understanding other people's stories and understanding how geopolitical situation in their country drove their immigration story. And now that economic story in the U.S., I would be shutting myself out of that opportunity of meeting such people if I was only a sports guy and I'd only be meeting people around that trip. 
So I realized that it was a personal call and what was important to me was you don't have to lose your passion for it, which I sadly did for a while. I described it as a failed marriage, which I'm pretending to hold on to just, but I think once you can let go of the fact that you've got a better view now, you've got a broader view, I can kind of come to peace with it. And, and, and I would say the biggest cliche that people say is make your passion your profession, because I think that's a very, it's a very generic thing to say. I mean, you can find love in what you're doing, of course, but if that's only the case, that it never works out for a lot of people, right? You can't, it's not easy for everyone to make the passion their profession. It's just not possible. And also the economy is not just one person. It's a series of other things. So tell someone to be a sports journalist now during COVID. It's who's hiring, what sports will they cover? Yeah. Right. Oh man, that's fascinating. So basically you had gotten into the geopolitical space. And so what inspired your journey into becoming a speaker? You know, I always love storytelling. Or, and I believe that storytelling is a very profound experience because if you think about it right from the time we were kids, Pamela, you remember stories. People write your parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts, someone read stories to you, right? It's almost universal across the world. I mean, even, I mean, yeah. of course, you know, some families more fortunate than others. And, uh, but stories give you, in whatever language you read them, they give you allegories, analogies, anecdotes to relate to. And, we, and as a lexophile today, we still use phrases like boy who cried wolf and selling the golden goose and, um, you know, cutting the golden goose or, um, you know, we, we, because these all are Aesop's fables and, you know, these, these things are so profound. So I always enjoyed storytelling. I briefly into my time in Singapore, I really realized that I wanted to do something more with my time. So I started dabbling in Toastmasters and enjoyed that experience a little bit. And my first earliest experience was, you know, when I was getting out of my sports passion, two of my good friends, uh, Vivek and Shankar, you know, involved in TEDx in one of the Singapore's major universities. So I got involved with them in TEDx. And I think the, the time I realized I lost my passion for sports, I went, you know, for a TEDx talk and I heard these inspiring speakers and I came back feeling like, what am I doing? I'm just going to go in tomorrow and cut some clip from some game and stick on some graphics. And, you know, it was that, it was the Mammoth going to mountain story. Something is this, I need to do something more. It was my Mammoth going to mountain story rather. Something I got to do something more. And, you know, started getting involved with them at TEDx and stuff like that. Then one fine day around 2015, 2016, uh, my friend said, hey, um, you know, you've been doing all these Toastmasters. Uh, we would like you to come for TEDx this year. I said, yeah, I'll be there. I said, no, no, as a speaker. And I was like, wait, what? You want me to speak? And he was like, yeah. Obviously, that gives you a little bit of pause because TEDx <laughs> is a platform that people like Bill Gates and uh, Bill Clinton and all the who's who of the world have spoken. And what would I speak about? And But then I kind of realized that the beauty about TED and speaking on those platforms, it's not about who you are. It's about what you have to say. The motto of TED is ideas worth spreading. You know, and there's, everyone has a story to tell. Everyone has an idea. Yes. And I realized that your story is uniquely yours. No two people have the same story. You could be twins in the same household and you could still have different stories because your visions are different. Your experiences are different. How you perceive things are different. And, yeah. and I realized that, you know, and that really was a very empowering experience. So uh, I took my Toastmaster skills and did my first TEDx in 2016. And it was a very, very uh, humbling experience. It was positively overwhelming. I recommend everyone, if you have the chance to do it, should do it. Even if you're not a public speaker, it's less about the, it's less about the branding and it's about the internal emotion and trying to parlay that story. And, and I think that it's TED Talks today are some of the best audiovisual books in some of this, you know, like just hearing these 18 minutes of profound stories across every genre. There's something for everyone over there. So I think that sort of sparked my first major TEDx thing. And of course, being in broadcast journalism, there was always a chance to go out and meet and talk to people. I think parlaying that on the big stage was a good experience. 
That's amazing. So what was your first TED Talk about? It was about journalism. <laughs> In fact, I spoke a little bit about how I lost my passion for ESPN Star Sports, for sports with my time at ESPN. It was about, what I would say is, again, journalism. It's about why the journalism industry is struggling. You know, and if you think about it, really, in the 1940s and 1950s, right, we needed Walter Cronkite to tell us something, and we consumed news one way. 9 p.m. news was how we got our news. The paper next morning is how we got our news. But today, news is on the go. You find your news of your time, not just through your own cell phones and push alerts, but you curate your own news, you get your own news. And of course, I mean, this also, and at that time, fake news was just coming around, it was 2016 in elections. So, but it was about how journalism at one point was sort of Batman forgot him, but it was also an identity crisis for a lot of things. Like we now have a system where we're going for TRPs and eyeball ratings. So there's yellow journalism, there's sensationalism, how the journalism at a very kernel level is a very noble, profound profession Mm-hmm. But what I realized in my time in sports journalism is that sadly no one pays you domain knowledge. Like, you know, journalists are not people who write, you know, and to think everyone's a writer is the same way to think that everyone's a runner, but there's a difference when Usain Bolt does it and difference with the way you and me may do it, right? There's a level of depth and art and skill and experience and, you know, and execution. But more than writing, journalists are domain knowledge experts. I mean, speak to someone who's covered the Middle East politics for 30 years, they will have so much to tell you. But it's also a time where journalism itself has become very anachronistic. If you think about the oldest newspaper today, it's Acta Diana that existed in, around Caesar's time, 44 BC. I mean, Christmas wasn't around then. But the fact it existed then is journalism is always, journalists always assume they'd always continue to exist. And we see today how newspaper, like, you know, small town newspapers, Pamela, you go to the Midwest and you see papers, something called the Sentinel from these towns is struggling right now because journalism, news organizations got monetization to primarily two things like ad, ad revenue and circulation if you're a paper or TRP and ratings. But today you have companies like Facebook and Google that are the biggest content aggregators. And of course, there's a lot of problem with all the news that's been pushed out. But when you're prime source was just being the people that's going to give you the content and that's no longer there anymore. I, I address my TED talk in these kind of fashion that the journalism is a very noble profession, but it's also an identity crisis, partly because of the way we're consuming our news and partly because of news organizations obstinance to not change in some ways. Right. And I don't have the remedy or the recipe for success because it's a very complicated question. It's horses for courses for different news outlets, but it's also a sense of, you know, what do we do to save this profession or how can we ensure it doesn't drown or there'll always be some sort of content. But again, it's assuming anyone's invincible is, you know, thinking that Nokia, a company that optimized cell phones is no longer around, you know, like cell phones and Nokia, Nokia were cell phones. And where's Nokia today? I mean, acquired by Microsoft, but doing something else. Where's, uh, you know, Kodak and where's, you know, other companies? Well, I mean, in journalism, not a company, but the various news organizations now being absorbed or taken in. And, you know, there was a great article saying who will write what we read that speaks about yesterday's news is today's fish and chips. And that's what the papers become. I mean, how many people do we know that still do this with a hard copy paper in the morning, which is sacrosanct for so many people. Like my dad till today will just hates reading stuff of electronics. Like <laughs> we were in Austria and my, I was struggling to find him an English version of the paper because everything was in German. And I'm like, dad, iPad, iPhone, I'll you open the New York times on this. Like, no, I need a paper. And, <laughs> That's like the boomer generation, but our generation is screen time. It's all this. And, you know, you don't need to watch a bulletin at 9 p.m. to get the news. So the various things that are happening right now, and I was trying to touch on all of this at a time when the fake news was also coming out. So it was trying to 
understand how journalism is evolving and where it is right now. That's incredible. That's incredible. And do you feel that journalism has sort of shifted with like co-creating content, you know, through like social media and stuff like that? Or I'm sure there's a whole slew of things, but. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think if you think about it, the first form of breaking news today is a tweet, you know, not the AP putting out a wire report, not an anchor screaming breaking news. It's a tweet, right? Um, and you see everyone, it's it become digital first thing. And you see that, right? Like, I mean, how many people... Yeah, of course, we tune in to all the major news outlets on the day of the elections, but we also, what's concurrent with our digital thing. And right now, everyone's creating news. I mean, you have Apple News as well. I mean, and everyone is creating their own news. And I think what, what digital has done in a lot of ways, it has democratized information, right? Like, like think about what your own podcast is a great example, right? One of the things that, again, that I will emphasize is when I was in the newsroom, we had producers who guarded the voice panel and the television panel like moats guarding a castle. They would decide, these four or five people would decide if you're good enough. So if they like Pamela, they will allow Pamela to host a show. If they do not like Pamela, Pamela will never be on air. And it was a very subjective arcane thing. And I've seen presenters have been on air for a long time. New editor-in-chief comes in, don't like them, they're off. Or new people, people who've never been on air and they're like, you have a nice face. Why don't you come and do your thing and read off a teleprompter? I was thinking about this the other day. As the song goes, a video killed the radio star, right? No one listened to radio because everyone was on television. Why are podcasts back in vogue, right? Because it's wait, content on demand. That's one. That's with news. That's with entertainment. That's why Netflix is there over what does Tuesday night at 9 p.m. mean? Like what channel? Like It doesn't mean anything because you want to binge watch something. It's your time. You can decide. And the second thing is it's democratizing our information. Why should someone at Pamela, who is a great person about, has these great stories to tell, who wants to meet other people with these stories, why should Pamela be dependent on a big news network to give her airtime to be able to conduct this, right? That's what it was. There were these people, and that's what journalism is also struggling, uh, because there's a sense of hubris among editors and major news outlets that would guard these voice panels and this, decide who's good to be on air and who's not good to be on air, that you wouldn't be able to have a platform. And I think as much as I did television news interviews, but my bigger speaking engagements all came through democratized information like TED. TED is about free information for everyone. You don't have to pay for a TED subscription. You don't get paid to do a TED talk, you know, but, and I think that's, and the beauty about podcasts and all of this was allowing other people because all these news outlets and big media companies just thought that they were the ones who guarded all the information. Information is precious, but it's no longer rare. It's like, you don't, like, imagine people in 1944-45 tuning in Britain to know if World War II was go- ended or not, or people depend on the newspaper to give them information. You don't need that anymore. I mean, God forbid something happens on the street outside. You can be the first responder by posting on Twitter and telling people. You don't need news camera crews to come in. More people can understand what's going on on your street in Massachusetts through you than through the local reporter maybe 20 miles out to, to come there. So that's how it's changed. Now, this is evolution of economies, this is evolution of scales, this is evolution of time with everything. And I think that's what all these media companies and journalism as a sense needs to figure out, right? I mean, there was a beauty in Woodward Bernstein doing the Watergate reporting. That was immaculate reporting and, you know, with all the president's men kind of. But today you don't need deep throat. I mean, if the White House puts out a tweet, everyone has that information. I mean, of course, there are sources that you have to cultivate. Woodward Bernstein had deep throat because they were Washington Post reporters. You don't necessarily have to be a big to get people on your podcast today. Right, right. No, I love that you're saying it's democratizing mm. content and freedom of speech in a way, because now you, 
I mean, there are no gatekeepers. We can record what we want, do what we want, say what we want, you know, and it's a beautiful thing. So that's incredible. Right. And let the audience decide that. Same thing with YouTube, same thing with all these podcast platforms or anything else. I mean, we are in a generation where we have vloggers, like we have kids who are not old enough to drink or vote, who are more, who make more money through Instagram and I don't know, Snapchat and TikTok. I mean, I don't even know some of these platforms that shows you how much of the older millennial I am, you know, making money of this, right? It's, I mean, we speak about my dad telling me that I have more choices today. Imagine what I'll be telling my future posterity of, you know, what choices they have, you know, being an Instagram influencer. That wasn't a thing five years ago. Right, right. Yeah. Absolutely. So, I mean, the world can be your marketplace now. It's limitless, which is a really exciting time. And it's the best time that I tell everybody to start a business or, you know, to do business because you can connect worldwide. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what the COVID has done. If you think about it, COVID's created a sense of location agnosticism, right? And, and I thought about this having lived in Singapore when I was taking the metro in DC. Broadly, I mean, of course, I, I don't want to homogenize it. But if you were to take, I'm just going to name a few cities, just like global business cities, like say, uh, Sydney, Seoul, Tokyo, Singapore, Hong Kong, London, uh, DC, New York, San Francisco, maybe you will still be able to take the metro to work. You'll be able to get your share of Italian, Chinese, Thai, Mexican, Indian cuisine, the pizza places everywhere. You'll be able to get Netflix, Amazon, Ubers. You'll be able to find an eclectic mix of friends, find a decent apartment to rent and a decent pub quiz to go to after work. And what will really change in some places is weather, taxes, and maybe the language impediment, if at all, in places like Seoul and Tokyo, where, which is not as maybe English friendly, but but broadly, it's no longer, you know, a lot of my family moved migrated to the U.S. Or when your family migrated to the U.S., it was the only place to come to, largely the place to come to for economic opportunities because everything else is not there elsewhere, right? You need people, like I remember when my relatives came to visit me in India, even Ferrero Rocher chocolates meant that relatives had come from overseas. If you had Ferrero Rocher chocolates in your house, like in some ways, globalization has sort of created that parity. I mean, Zoom is the new Google of sorts, the way we are sitting and talking right now, right? And like the fact that you could open a phone and get an Uber anywhere, I mean, maybe it's something else somewhere else, but, or and Amazon comes everywhere and you can watch Netflix, whatever, you can do these Zoom calls. That's going to create a new sense of complete location agnosticism. It's going to create, businesses are going to rethink themselves. Commercial property developers will have to find another alternative because this is the new headquarters. It, the cloud is your headquarters now. Well, yeah. I mean, even this just happened in Boston, but like the, one of our movie theaters is going out of business. And so automatically it's turning into an Amazon distribution warehouse. Wow. So, you know what I mean? Like a lot of, uh, you know, real estate's going to have to reinvent itself to meet 21st century criteria yeah. post COVID as well. Like yeah. one of the properties I'm developing too. One thing I'm thinking about is a home office is going to get installed. You know what I mean? And right near the foyer. So, you know, you can get stuff done. So it's like all these things. So I think the post effects of COVID will definitely ring a long time. You're right about that. Uh, I was reading something that Ajay Banga, the CEO of MasterCard, said something. He said, it's not so much about work from home. It's now living at work. It is right now, right? And and of course, there are other constraints of work from home, right? In some ways, you do miss human interaction. The water cooler, as we know, at work is so sacrosanct. As, uh, you know, it, it's both, uh, you know, portrayed negatively and positively. But but there are other things that come with it, right? I mean, I don't have a family of my own, but I, you know, I can see with other people who have young kids and stuff like that, it does benefit them as well. And uh, again, to each their own, but you're right. Like this is really changing the nature. Like even your example of movie theaters in Massachusetts. Think about it. We've had 
the silent from even before the silent era or since the silent era, we've had this thing of talkies and balconies and stalls and multiplexes. And you would have thought, oh no, wait, theater is just going to go crazy and wild and wild. But more people will be like home theaters now. And the fact that people are not congregating anymore, like all these major companies today, what are they doing? They're investing in streaming services now because they're like, you can just depend on top revenue anymore. I mean, you always have this, I'm not an economist, but you always have this profound moment that changed the way. Like in 1945, we had the Bretton Woods system that created the dollars as a reserve currency that created the United States and Washington as sort of the, the center of the geopolitical gravity with the IMF and World Bank being here. And that sort of, I mean, COVID in a lot of ways and has created this new phenomenon or will be epiphanic. I mean, you know, we talk about this new normal and we're still, you know, we have the BC era before COVID era, but as this changes, it'll be hard to think given that something has been so cataclysmic to healthcare, to economies, to our interactions with people, what there will be profound changes. And we're just talking about home office and, you know, your business and the way you've done business before and in BC and now in DC. And <laughs> we'll have to think about how business will be AC, you know, so. Right. But it's here to stay, though. I think these marks are here to stay. And it's interesting, you know, from your perspective, from the jur- journalism route, the geopolitical route, how this is really shifted a lot of a lot of things and you know and so I would love to hear from you like what's your best piece of advice for for anyone out there you know regarding your life experiences or your experiences in the geopolitical space journalism space what what would be your best piece of advice the one thing I always told people is the biggest cliche you could ever ask someone or even the moment you hear it you know it's just cliche is where do you see yourself five years from now because like 10 months before this, we could not imagine a pandemic of this size and scale, right? And five years before that, things like FinTech and blockchain and AI and podcasts were barely a thing. Five years before that, Instagram was not a thing. Five years before that, social media was barely a thing and Ubers and all didn't yeah. exist. So where do you see yourself five years from now is the fact that someone, like every time interviewers do that, it just shows that you, they're just throwing firecrackers at your feet and seeing how you well you tap dance. Because if you can recycle the same question to anyone, anywhere in the world, in any sector, it's not unique. So I would kind of say that you don't have to have a five-year plan because a five-year plan is, a five-month plan is hard to do right now. Like I, we don't know what's going to happen in May if the vaccine's going to eradicate COVID and all. So there is a sense of that economic sector study are malleable. I would try to say that that careers are no longer corporate ladders. They're jungle gyms. You move up, you move down, you move sideways. You know, the move down could be quick, stable job to start your own business, right? So it's technically down income wise, but it could be a, you know, sideways move and then a hockey shape recovery. You know, we talk about V-shaped recovery as an economy. So, and I would just say that for what's really helped me is, and I'm nowhere, I don't think there's anything called a finished product. I'm still learning every day. I think what's really worked well for me is having a sense of intellectual curiosity, constantly doing that and you know when I took my second plunge and quit stable income and relocated from Singapore to the U.S. for a second grad school degree it was financially most people tell me it was the stupidest thing to do but I also knew that based on my first experience the fact that I got my random break through one phone call walking into a, a random audition and change the change the country I lived in change the jobs I would ever have is you know your biggest opportunities necessarily come from the people you meet right I mean we hear about networking but Networking can have a shallow connotation to it. It can have like, you know, like a vicious greed angle to it. That's not the case. It's about meeting amazing people, you know? And I would say that intellectual curiosity, that sense of wanting to connect, you know, LinkedIn is your best friend today. You know, you have, I, you have so many people out there doing amazing things. Keep that intellectual curiosity. Keep that sense of meeting amazing people. 
try telling your own story because that's you uniquely. And I tell this to people even writing their SOP for schools. They're like, oh, what did you write? I'm like, my story is different from yours. So own your own story, right? Like no one has your own story. Even if you and someone, your colleague are same people, same undergrad, same jobs, applying for the same grad school, you have different stories. Tell your own story because authenticity is important. And I'd say lastly, the important thing is, you know, understand your DNA, not in any geopolitical molecular sense, because I'm not there. I'm not a science person, but what really makes you tick? And I realized what made me tick was this intellectual curiosity, this understanding and meeting new people, trying new things. I think as long as we're constantly learning, right, it's, it's important. And it's not what you don't know that kills you. It's what you think you know, and that isn't so that kills you, right? Do you convince yourself, yeah, yeah, COVID's going to go away in five months time. I'm going to book this world around the cruise trip and everything's going to be fine. Well, you're convincing yourself about something you don't know. And, you know, that's going to come back. So I think there's a sense of intellectual humility as well, that you're constantly learning. And uh, so I'd say those are sort of the things that, that have helped me. And I hope they continue to help me because, you know, in my early 30s, it's still a long way to go. And uh, like I said, I couldn't tell you what's going to happen five months from now. I'm hoping that the next journey is, is amazing. And uh, kids in the 20s always reach out to me and I'll be like, your 20s is your most power play phase. You know, you can go in cricket or baseball, go crazy at this time. But by your 30s, you sort of have to consolidate. So no matter how your 20s went, if you went crazy hitting or you lost a couple of guys who went out, your 30s is sort of the rebuilding phase. So use your 20s wisely. It doesn't mean that start worrying about everything. Absolutely. I love that, Akshab. Thank you so much for all your insight. And wow, you have quite a journey and I'm just inspired by you, my friend. So thank you so much for sharing everything. Now everyone's got to know where to find you and your awesome self. You know, honestly, with my name, it's literally one in a billion. So <laughs> Akshob on Twitter. Um, Akshob, you can find me on LinkedIn on Twitter if you want to connect. So Akshob on Twitter is a good place to connect. Reach out. I'm be happy to get in touch. I literally say my name is literally one in a billion because I own my name at gmail.com as well. So that's where <laughs> you can spam and hate mail as well. Try not to too much. Thank you so much for taking the opportunity. And I know, you know, you meet a lot of people, interesting people. So thank you for giving me the time to be on your podcast. The only dream that I've been chasing is my own. So that's it for today's episode of Underdog. Head on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. One lucky listener every single week that posts a review on iTunes will win a chance in the grand prize drawing to win a private VIP day with Pamela herself in Boston, Massachusetts. Be sure to go to theunderdogshow.com and pick up a copy of Pamela's free gift. And join us on the next episode. <laughs>